Welcome to Unfurling, a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Katrina. Good to see you again, Kat. It's been a few weeks. It's mm-hmm. been an eventful few weeks, which has kind of prompted one of the reasons actually that's prompted the theme for today's episode, which is relocation. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of, that's the word we're using as our anchor, I guess, relocation. Also conscious that there are other words kind of closely connected to that. So movement and migration and home. And we will touch on some of those in different ways. Mm. One of the big prompts for that theme has been a really practical one. Um, I've just moved house, Mm -hmm. still within Devon in the southwest of the UK. I just, I feel kind of like I'm in chaos at the moment. There are boxes Mm. everywhere. I have a sense of what this house will be, but it doesn't yet feel like home and it will be home. I'm looking out my window right now. I can see green and trees and fields and yeah, lovely. But yeah, also chaotic. Yeah. So we thought we would just explore that topic and and we've got a few ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I love actually that we've, we've kind of caught you almost in the the midst of it all, you know, because often... And I think of relocation, particularly in humans, can feel like there's A to B, you know, and then you are in one place or you're in the other place. And yet there's huge transition involved, even if it's a choice you're making yourself. And when it's not your choice, there's even more, can, can be even more challenge and transition. So I think we just go with where you're at right now and we can learn from you, not just from the natural world, that we can learn from you being in this place right now. You know, we were saying it feels topical and timely anyway actually whether we think on the individual level like somebody moving house like myself or whether we think nationally and internationally and globally you know thinking about refugees environmental refugees increasingly Mm. or animals migrating there are lots of things that came up for us when we started talking about this topic we're going to go on a bit of a wonder we're going to Mm -hmm. relocate (laughs) from the beginning of the podcast hopefully to the end and we'll see what happens in between yeah I like that hopefully we make it (laughs) well I feel it's time to quickly um do a little bit of uh looking at definitions of relocation I have to say out of all the episodes we've done this (laughs) this was the most um unexciting definition I could find yeah (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was looking up the, the origin, first of all, of the word relocation, and it comes from 1746 in Scottish law, mm-hmm. and it means renewal of a lease. <laughs> oh, dear. See, that sounded exciting. The Scottish law, <laughs> the old did. stuff. I, I thought I, I was hopeful, and then I just switched off. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, it's not hugely exciting. And then I, I, I went back to the Cambridge Dictionary to see if they had mm-hmm. more uh, inspiration. and. Yeah. Relocation there is, is very perfunctory. It's uh, the act of moving or moving something or someone from one place to another. Ooh, inspired. Yes. But I guess, you know, maybe that's just a, a very baseline what we're looking at. And mm. I guess perhaps some of the, the interest and the nuance will come as we explore um, mm. this topic. So today it's just the two of us. We don't have any guests. Yep. Yeah, and yet we've still got a few things we want to explore, so we're just going to jump in. Um, and the, the first thing, actually, that kind of came to mind, I guess, almost as we ripple out from an individual, myself, moving mm. house, is mm. is more the kind of the national, like, what does that look like nationally right now? Mm. Um, 
we've got the kind of unique context of COVID and a global pandemic mm-hmm. during that time, certainly in the UK, we're conscious that a lot of people have been thinking about where they live and, and why they live where they live. Mm-hmm. Um, so people realizing they don't necessarily need to be in an office in a city and are choosing to explore more rural ways of living and mm-hmm. looking at homes in other parts of the UK that they might not have considered before on a kind of drier level there is a there is a tax that you pay when you buy a house called stamp duty here in the UK and there's been a kind of stamp duty holiday so Mm. we haven't had to pay that tax and actually that changed yesterday so people have Mm. been desperately trying to get their house uh, purchases in before that that cut off but it's it's raised a lot of questions and it's put a lot of pressure on places like Devon and Cornwall in the Mm. southwest where I am where Mm. It's all, for a quite some time, it's been challenging for local people to afford to buy houses. I think where I am in Devon, people, like the average cost of a house is about nine times the average salary. Um, and it's higher in other parts of Devon. Um, and actually, the demand for houses in the southwest during COVID has pushed that up even more. Mm. Um, and I regularly have residents saying to me, we just can't afford to to live in this area where our family has been for generations. What do we do? So it's raised a lot of questions around mm. affordability, housing provision, planning, mm-hmm. development, all sorts. Um, so that's been in our mind, hasn't it? Yeah, for me, it's been bringing up um, thoughts about if you have choice to move, um, and this is something you're actively wanting to do, you know, what are you choosing to move towards, what are you moving away from? And also the impact on the new local population of moving in and the old population that you're leaving behind. Um, mm. I'm certainly noticing in London, people are have been and are continuing to move out. And we're hanging on in London for now. We, we're expecting the, the roaring 20s um, mm. to come into fruition. And yet there definitely in our mind has been questions and, and will continue to be questions about do we and if so, when move out of the city. So, yeah, I think it's kind of thinking about individual choice and, mm. and we'll, I'm sure we'll explore later in the podcast where there isn't a choice as well, where it's forced mm. movement. Um, but also thinking about the, the kind of systems that we're working in and the impact on those as well feels mm. important. And actually, um, Elizabeth, I have a book that you very kindly gave to me um, a while oh. back. That was um, nice of me, wasn't it? It was very nice. It opens up and there's a lovely little quotation. Enjoy, oh. yeah, enjoy wandering and exploring now and always. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <It's> very nice. <laughs> oh, I'm glad well, you're reading it. Thank you. Well, you, you know me, I'm not as avid a reader as you, but I do mm. like dipping in and out of things. Mm. So mm. Um, this book is called On Nature, Unexpected Ramblings on the British Countryside. And I was on a chapter which is called Living on a Remote Island. Mm. And it's about living on an island in um, called Egg, um, which is one of the smaller islands um, off Scotland's west kind of shoulder, as it were. There's just a, a kind of short paragraph that, that made me think about this idea of certainly what we've noticed here in the UK with relocation recently, you know, towards the countryside and certainly away from cities recently. Um, and it says this, the thing is, despite its unspoilt beauty, Remote idols like this are soulless without people. In the popular imagination, islands are synonymous with escape, but you don't opt out by moving to an island. You tie yourself into a collective psyche, whether you like it or not. The notion of living in a community, a hazy and remote conceit when I lived in London, is a reality. 
And that was written by a lady called Sarah Bowden. Mm. And it just, it's just kind of uh, made me think as well as, you know, we talked about systems and individual, you know, it's, it's thinking about community. Um, and I suppose I'm kind of curious, Elizabeth, you, you're, you've just moved into a new community and how, how that feels. Mm. I like that quote. I'm particularly thinking about Scottish islands, which are just beautiful. We, in the last few years, have been to Skye and Iona um, with some friends, and that was lovely. And, yeah, there's just a real sense of just ident- like collective identity, mm. which I've sort of noticed myself feeling a bit jealous of. Mm. I don't know, maybe jealous is too strong a word, but kind of craving some sense of collective identity as well as individual mm. identity. And I think the two for me are I think linked. And anyway, yeah, we've just moved to a village um, in Devon and it's a small village. In fact, we're getting married at the church in this village um, next month, which is exciting. And we already know the name of the bell ringer, Ron. <laughs> Can't nice. wait for Ron to, to ring the bells and play the organ and do all the other various things he does. But it's that, yeah. for me, it's, it's, it's something about knowing... Well, it sounds really silly, but knowing people's names and and knowing how they help make this place work mm. and imagining how we can be a part of that. I love that idea of it taking a village to raise a child. Mm. And I really want that to be true. And I see how it is true. Well, actually, when I think of that sentence, I think of Africa and places I've been to and lived in in Africa and really seeing how that's true, you know, literally it takes like a village is involved in raising the children of the village. And I love that idea. Like for me, home is really important, having a place to come home to and shut the door. Mm. And I'm excited to make this new house that we've just moved to feel like home. But it is, it is also that, like it's a place to come back to. Mm. It's a place. And sort of almost walking over this invisible threshold of place and knowing that you're in this collective community I guess as you say Mm. and I I find that simultaneously quite intimidating and challenging because there's a sense of needing to be vulnerable right Mm. when you're in a community you have to you you sort of have to open up and share and and that's exciting but scary too Mm. but also I find it just really beautiful and just riffing off that slightly something that's been in my mind recently I've sort of you know, there's been a real boom, rightly so, in things like um, well-being courses and well-being apps and um, meditations and this, that and the other. And that's wonderful. But so many of them, or I think maybe most of them are aimed at the individual. And I've kind of been curious around, are we neglecting collective well-being and collective, you know, mindfulness and collective, I don't know, (laughs) I, just, I feel like the focus is so much on the individual and I'm curious in ha- like how do we take community f- from being a sort of nice fluffy romantic idea to something that actually we really invest in and we are as concerned about collective well-being as we are about individual well-being. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I guess it's always kind of making sure that the collective well-being, if you improve that, will then trickle back to the individual, you know, it's mm. kind of making, making the case for it. Yeah. Um, because you know so often we are individually driven or at least you know within our small families Mm. it reminds me that kind of collective feeling 
reminds me of this word that I came across a while back that I really like called hyreth. Mm-hmm. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, I hope I am. Um, no idea. It's, uh, <laughs> no idea. Oh, <laughs> if we have any Welsh listeners, I apologize if I just said it wrong. But anyway, hyreth is how I think it is. Um, it's a Welsh concept of longing for home, mm. um, which can be loosely translated as nostalgia or homesickness. But many Welsh people... Um, think of it as something that can't be translated and it's, it's something around missing something or missing a home. Um, it could even be a time, an era or a person that you're missing. But So there's something about how to yeah, build that sense of collective um, feeling and, and also acknowledging when you're noticing that there's something missing, you know, mm. and, and how does that relate to home and, and what do you do about it? You know, how do you, does that mean fit, needing to physically relocate oneself? Is there something more spiritual, individualistic? I love that word. And I feel like I should know that word. We've got a huge like Welsh part to our family. Mm. So I'm going to go and investigate. Talking about kind of time and collective and, and, and place makes me think of the monarch butterfly, mm. which I, just, I find it fascinating. So it migrates 3,000 miles over five generations mm. um, up through the Americas. I find that fascinating. How does, I don't know, the word that comes up for me is trust, like it's mm-hmm. trust and this kind of inbuilt, like intuitive sense of where it's going, even though, you know, it, it will never see the, you know, the butterfly doing that first leg of the migration will never get to home, will never get to the place they're trying to get to, but they, they follow it anyway. They, mm. they, they trust, um, they trust anyway. So, so the so the breeding grounds of these butterflies are in northeastern US and Canada, mm. and then, like I say, over five generations, they travel three thousand miles to get to their overwintering grounds in southwest Mexico. Mm. And the the individuals that do that migration will never return. And it's just it's fascinating. Like, how do they know where to go and when to go, and 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 trusting that the baton that they pass on to the next generation will be carried on. There's something really amazing about it, which to me, it kind of speaks of the the importance of the collective, you know, like playing the long game and trusting your piece, trusting your your piece in the jigsaw, jigsaw the, the leg of the race that you're doing, um, knowing that you won't necessarily always see the fruits of your efforts, but doing it anyway, nonetheless, because it's written inside of you and it's who you are and you can't do anything else. Mm. I just, yeah, I think it's beautiful, that, that, that natural process of monarch migration. Yeah, I love it because it's really thinking about, you know, the butterflies that actually complete the journey are the kind of great, 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 you know, mm. grandchildren of those, those butterflies that started out. And, mm. yeah, there's something I, I think, you know, that I really like it, just this idea of living is around living with that idea of legacy like what are we leaving behind and yes sometimes it won't be in our lifetime and actually it might not be within several lifetimes but it's almost like every everything that we do contribute there is that ripple effect and if humans move beyond the individuals what can be achieved so I think there's some some good learning from that it also reminds me of my dad um, Mm. this kind of conversation because I know with the the monarch butterflies, you know, they, they don't know exactly how they know where to go and that it can mm-hmm. be kind of a mixture of potentially the Earth's magnetic fields and the position of the sun. And uh, my dad, um, 
he's uh, mentioned in a book called The Seabird's Cry by Adam Nicholson, which is about the lives and loves of puffins, gannets, and other ocean voyagers. Hmm. And uh, in it, they describe, well, not my dad, but someone that he knew took um, two shearwaters um, from Skullcombe, which is an island off of Wales, um, to America, to Boston. One survived the trip um, there, and then they released that surviving bird. And it came home. It came home to, to its mm. burrow in the island. And there's a, a, a little paragraph here about what my dad had written. He said he was completely flabbergasted to find AX6587 in its own burrow. As we had not then heard your letter, I was convinced you must have run into trouble with our customs and released the bird at London. The boat came over that morning with your letter. There was no gainsaying the result then. A pretty touch, the bird beating the mail. Hmm. So, yeah, I guess there's, there's something for me very personal in, in the idea of exploring navigation. My dad spent a lot of time looking into that and mm. bird migration. And just, yeah, what, what can we learn Yeah, about trust? I think, I think you're right. That's a great word around this. Trusting our, our literally our homing instincts, you know, how mm. to get back. Um, trusting in the collective, trusting in time. It reminded me of um, a, a quote by the German author Hermann Hesse. Hesse, I never know how you pronounce his surname. I think it's Hesse. He wrote a short book, which I have somewhere in a box, probably, um, about mm-hmm. trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but I rummaged online to find one of the passages. And, and as you were speaking about, yeah, that idea of trust and, and, and instinct and so on, it kind of reminds me of this line, which was, so it's from a longer paragraph, but it's just simply... Whoever has learned how to listen to trees no longer wants to be a tree. He wants to be nothing except what he is. That is home. That is happiness. Mm. And um, the, the, the book, um, which we'll reference in the show notes, it, it's lovely. It's, it's, I mean, it's about lessons from trees, and I think it's great. But, but that idea of seeing some other creature be so itself and so trusting mm. its own instincts, whether it's a tree or a bird or whatever, mm how do we reflect that back to ourselves and um, just really be who we are and, and mm. trust in that and trust the instincts, which we might not be able to explain. Like, mm. you know, the first generation monarch butterfly can't explain this pull to what will eventually be, as you say, it's great, 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 you know, grandparent, but mm. it follows that line nonetheless. And the same with migrating birds and that kind of navigation Mm. externally and in, internally and how do we how do we almost triangulate maybe from community and from the natural world to know ourselves better so mm. I, when I think of you know knowing ourselves and therefore being in tune with our instincts there is a very insular way you can do that on, on kind of self-retreat and inner looking and so on and that's all important but I'm also increasingly convinced of the of the need is that the word I don't know of the of the importance of doing that also in community mm. and in the natural world and bouncing ideas and testing things and finding your own shape and, and you know you can't do all that work on your own by yourself mm. as tempting as that can be um, or as challenging as that can be it's not it's not always tempting and I think it's hard to find yourself learn yourself in community but for me it feels necessary I think Mm. or certainly insightful yeah yeah and I guess for me kind of just going back a little bit to 
that idea of trust. Um, there's also kind of, I guess there's hope, isn't there, about impact there as well. And, you know, that could be physical impact. Um, you know, when I was researching this topic, I came across, and again, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Vincennes Trace, um, which was a major trackway running through what are now the American states of Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois. And it was originally formed by millions of migrating bison. Mm. Um, so often it's 12 to 20 feet wide in places, um, was well known and used by American Indians. Um, so, you know, there can be physical impact. Um, and I guess it's kind of also being curious about the impact in the new place. Um, sometimes that can be really beneficial and positive. Other times it can be detrimental. And yeah, it, it makes me think of um, Maria Island, um, which is off Tasmania's East Coast, um, which for millennia was predator free um, for ground nesting and flightless birds, such as the Tasmanian native hen, shearwaters, which we've mentioned earlier, Cape Barren geese and the little penguin. And in 2012, um, there was a, a facial tumor disease that decimated the Tasmanian devil population. And so humans brought 28 of these Tasmanian devils onto the island, essentially as an insurance policy or insurance population. And before they were released, there were around 3,000 pairs of little penguins on the island. And a survey conducted by Parks and Wildlife staff about 18 months ago found that none of the penguin colonies um, had survived. There were no penguins left on Maria Island. Mm. So whilst the Tasmanian devils have gone on to thrive, there's been an expense to the ecology, you know, of the penguins. Mm. And I guess it's, um, it makes me think of, you know, moving the conversation we started, it's the, the kind of nice type of relocation where you're choosing to move and um, hopefully moving towards something, um, mm. more space, uh, I don't know, a smaller community, whatever it drives you. Mm. Um, but actually relocation there's not always choice involved. It can be forced, whether that's by work or family desires, through to the environment and climate mm. change. And it's it's also, I think, important to think about that part of relocation and the impact there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes me think of a couple of things, not least on the kind of global stage of environmental refugees, climate refugees, mm. you know, people that are being forced to relocate because of the climate or and, you know specifically drought and lack of water and you know not being able to grow crops anymore and stories of 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 people being forced to relocate for for reasons like that you know they're popping up more more frequently in the news and also on a on a certainly on a national level but i suppose in different ways internationally it makes me too think of well farmers actually that are kind of being that may be forced to to relocate because of again the climate you know they can no longer farm what they used to farm whether that's potatoes in east anglia or whatever else changing weather patterns might force farmers to have to move off land that they've been on for generations hundreds and hundreds of years sometimes and connected to that the concept of rewilding i think it's Mm. wonderful in many ways you know how do we almost sort of take 
nature back to a really raw wild state again and um you know reintroduce species that haven't been around for a long time at a landscape level or a smaller level and i think the concept's great in many ways but you know some people i speak to are thinking about well what does that mean for things like farming and and other ways of life we're going to have to relocate those things if we want to rewild whatever the lake district or Mm. wherever else what about the people that live and work and farm in that place mm-hmm. and if you take that to an extreme we'll we'll end up kind of outsourcing or displacing or yeah relocating processes that are maybe messy and elsewhere because we don't want to see them you know we need we need farmers we need factories probably we need all sorts of things um if we can rewild here great but that's going to have to carry on somewhere else so we you know we push it to another country or somewhere else where we don't have to think about it i know in reality it'll be a kind of blend but it goes back to what you were saying about the I guess the luxury of having choice we can choose what to do with our landscapes to a degree but what about countries that don't get a say in that yeah it's and it's as the population continues to increase and as the climate deteriorates and the natural world um, you know loses biodiversity and healthy soil and so on mm. these are these are things we need to think about we already are thinking about but are only going to get worse and again, on a local, well, national and local level, there's a bill that's just been retabled in the UK Parliament. It's the Climate and Ecology Bill, and it would give, it it would create new laws and new tools and levers um, that we can use to to genuinely plan and create policies to protect nature, to protect the climate. It would make that a lot easier than for, for example, local planning authorities to decide: Do we need this development? Do we need to build these houses? How do we think about conservation in this place so and I guess just as a final point there that really makes me think I have this kind of constant conversation in my head of sort of local versus global and how do you kind of really root into a place and understand all the policies and nitty-gritty and people and stories and nuance of a place but also keep in mind global realities Mm. Um, and I think I feel privileged that I've that I've been able to work in both contexts and, and still do to a degree. And I feel like it's a dialogue when, you know, we need to know the impact of what we do locally on a global level, whether that's, you know, kicking things down the road or displacing things to factories halfway around the world. So we don't need to think about it. That local global conversation to me feels really important. And I notice in a lot of sort of nature writing and, and other kinds of narrative writing that generally authors seem to be on in one camp or another. Mm. And I'm curious about conversations that take into account both and find a, an, another way of weaving them together. Mm. Yeah, I think that takes a lot of, um, there's a lot of holding with that, you know, because it's, mm. you know, if you're locally minded, then, you know, you see the fruits or the difficulties, you know, of the labour, of your labour, and if you're more globally minded, you're you're very aware of the impacts, you know, that we have as the UK on other parts of the world. But it is that little bit more removed and it's how to, to genuinely be able to be in those two places and that kind of almost like third entity between them. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's it's not just kind of holding the space, actually. It's, it's also active diplomacy will be required. Um between countries, between populations, and, and even going back to the natural world, I remember, you know, my dad talking about, you know, how, when you think about a migrating bird that's going across countries and even um, continents, 
actually, you know, there has to be diplomacy between different countries to to encourage um, the migration so that, I can't remember exactly the examples used, but for example, if they were geese, you know, they don't get shot down mm. by certain countries. So, yeah, I guess that there's going to be something about diplomacy here um, that we can, you know, that I'm sure is already happening, but that feels important. And, and also for me, mm. something about how to, to think long-term, you know, in crises. So we're obviously facing, you know, climate change crisis, which is around us. And, and in the kind of shorter term, COVID has very much been the crisis uh, for mm. much of the world recently. And, you know, we've taken steps, you know, in response to that. And, and one of them has been about going back to the stamp duty idea. You know, obviously there's an economic benefit to that's encouraging um, the housing market to, to keep afloat and actually to thrive. And mm. yet, you know, there clearly is impact on, on local populations and on populations that are being left behind as well, mm. places that are being left behind. So, yeah, I guess this, in my mind, how can we bring some long-term thinking in here as well when we think about relocation? Yeah, that kind of playing the long game feels really important. And, and that, again, takes me back to the monarch butterflies and that kind of playing the part in the longer journey, which you might never see fully play out. I guess one thing that it brings up in me is um, there's a, a nice little um, YouTube video um, by the Journal of Applied Ecology, which I'll, I'll put a link to in the in the show notes. And it's it's about animal conservation translocation programs. Animal conservation translocation is um, a tool available to conservation biologists um, to address problems of isolated, declining or endangered population. And there's a research paper, again, I'll put it in the, the link, um, by Resend et al., um, in which they do a, a meta-analysis to look at release protocol for success in animal conservation and they found that soft releases whereby you know you slowly introduce animals into their new or returning environment um, are in general better than those hard releases where you just essentially put them straight back in especially for reptiles and so yeah I guess it makes me think about how can we think proactively and ahead of time about soft releases you know or soft landings um, around relocation, whether that's relocation we're choosing actively or whether that's forced relocation. So, yeah, it seems that I guess that's the kind of thing I'm coming away with is uh, where's the space and for that, that, soft, that soft landing, essentially. Mm. And I, I feel like, um, oh, there was something, was it one of our guests, Lindsay, on a few episodes ago talked mm. about I think she was referencing something Chris Packham, the, the nature broadcaster, had said, which is that humans are not very good at prevention, but very good at cure. Mm, mm. And that just came to mind, like the idea that soft release and the kind of slower, the build up, the the adjusting to when we have the time to do that and 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 so on. I think that's a really that's a really good way to go. And I guess my fear is that the longer we don't tackle crises like, mm. you know, the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, whatever, we'll be forced into mm. making a hard, mm. a hard release, a hard relocation, a hard change, which will be a real shock to all of our systems individually and collectively. Mm. Whereas if we act now, even though that's difficult and make good decisions now, which might be a little bit painful now, mm. but actually won't be half as painful as, you know, waiting 10, 20, 
30 years down the road when we'll be forced. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there's some lesson there, you know. Yeah, you know, animals that, that do better with soft relocations, I think humans probably do as mm. well, like slowly adjusting to a place, mm. slowly adjusting to an idea. How, mm. do we, how, do we, how do we use that as we tackle some of these challenges? Mm. Yeah, so it's kind of how to, yeah, introduce that, that slowness but not inactivity or not shying away from what's going on um Mm. knowing that we are facing genuine crises Mm. so so taking it seriously as well the the author and educator parker palmer who i like he i've read a few of his books he talks about the idea of the tragic gap which is Mm. a place which is hard to stand in so it's where you're not kind of succumbing to cynicism and and um, just brushing your hands and saying it's not possible. I'm not going to do it. Um, but equally, you're not in the kind of track of over optimism and wishful thinking. Mm. And he says the challenge is to stand in that tragic gap, to recognise the realities and the difficult things, but also to to keep moving forward. So don't be overly optimistic. But equally, don't sit back and do nothing and be cynical and say everything's doomed. Mm. Find a way to stand in that difficult gap and face reality, but move forward anyway. And I think, yeah, that just came to mind. Yeah, it reminds me of a a quote I came across earlier that's by uh, Benjamin Franklin, Mm. um, that all mankind is divided into three classes. Those that are immovable, those that are movable, and those that move. And so I guess it's, yeah, a question, I guess, as we wrap up from my side is how do we as individuals, communities and bigger systems, what do we want to move on? You know, it could be mm. physical moving. It could be mental or spiritual movement. It could be out in the world. You know, how do we contribute to fighting climate change? But there's something about how do we want to, how do we want to move? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a good question. And what are we moving towards and away from? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. There's lo- there's other things peeing into my mind, but I think I feel like that's a nice way to think about bringing this to a close. Um, and actually, I, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, um, but I was listening to U2, the, the band U2 the mm. other day, and there's a line in one of their songs, and it's a cliche, we've heard it before, but it reminded me of it, that a house doesn't make a home. Yeah. And, you yes. know, I've been thinking about that very realistically as we moved house, but equally, you know, what is home? And it reminds me back of that home and Hess quote about kind of knowing yourself and once you're mm. comfortable there, like a tree teaches us to be, that's a, that's a kind of home. So I guess with that, there's a, a dual energy. So there's, I guess, part of my question about, you know, how do you want to move? You know, mm. And then f- for you, what you're bringing is, you know, it's about actually moving back towards yourself as well and really having strong foundations. Um, and it reminds me of um, the, there's a, a field of work called the work that reconnects, which is around that is really centering yourself so that you can go out into mm. the world. And so, yeah, so maybe it's those two pieces mm. you've our listeners with. Yeah, that feels richer. Mm. Yeah, and and I guess I would just add into that that sort of the non-duality thing as well, like mm. the kind mm. of local versus global, individual versus collective. Mm. I don't think it ever is versus. I think that that versus in the middle can sometimes get in our way, and it's 
local and global individual and collective and how do we kind of how do we nurture and learn from all of that you know both of those ways of being and yeah I think yeah just this idea of relocations really got me thinking about that so thank you for the conversation Kat well thank you I think we've uh yeah meandered all over the place from A to B (laughs) and yeah certainly different from the 7046 uh Scottish law of renewal of a lease um (laughs) yeah we were faced with at the beginning (laughs) yeah we took that idea and just yeah ran with it didn't we (laughs) we did indeed um yes okay well I wish you and I'm sure everyone listening wishes you every happiness in your new house and creating your new home and community and uh, I'm very jealous of the view that you have um, from your study it's beautiful just rolling hills lots of greens Mm. so um, I'm sure you will be happy Thank you. And completely nailing a childhood dream, a nerdy childhood dream of having my own office (laughs) as well. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) So yeah, no, thank you very much. Thank you. And yeah, looking forward to you coming to stay when you want a Devon break. Oh, I'd love that. Absolutely. Great. Thanks listeners. Thank you for being with us as ever. It's, it's, It's a pleasure to, you know, have a conversation together and hope that you might take something from it. Um, yeah thanks for being with us yeah thank you yes if you anything pops up or any questions pop up do join our facebook group unfurling podcast um we we welcome your feedback and questions and thoughts Um, Mm, absolutely but with that i think that's us for now um so this has been unfurling a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire see you next time see you next time